Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and you, you are welcome to the Siprit Round Table on a warm but overcast Thursday afternoon in London town. Now, in the next 60 minutes, interrogation, what are the rules and who breaks them? Afghanistan, just 18 months to win the war? Cuba, is the mob ready to move into Havana? Lebanon, why the election matters to us? Iran, voting starts in the morning, who will win? Northern Ireland, why the Omer bombers are not behind bars? Arms sales, who are the big spenders? Nuclear warheads, why the United Nations watchdogs are barking at Iran? Quite like that. Korea, has the dear leader beaten us all at our own game? And Balkan hide and seat, why Radvan Karadzic was all one step ahead of the BBC's war crimes catcher? Oh, and who was the guy in the pantomime get-up in Italy this week? Um, US Defence Secretary Robert Gates now believes that Pakistan's peace deals with Taliban are producing even more violence in Afghanistan and that that the clock is ticking on who wins the war. So on the line from Washington, Marvin Weinberg of the Middle East Institute. Um, Tell me, I mean, is uh, Secretary Gates, he's basically saying that deals between Pakistan and Taliban amount to appeasement, isn't it? Well, yes, we've been saying this for some time. We've uh, had objections to uh, all of the the deals that have been made. Uh, Earlier on, the attitude was, well, uh, we'll wait and see, but I think that there's no need for that now. We have enough evidence that these deals uh, have given the, the Taliban the additional opportunity to expand their influence and and they haven't lived up to the terms of the deals that have been worked out up until now especially now we're focused on the breakdown of the SWAT deal. Um, tell me about that because I thought the counteroffensive in the Sawat Valley and this week the Pakistani army shelling uh, the Taliban in the Banu district of northwest of the northwest seems to suggest that the Pakistanis have called the deals off and they're just going for the Taliban. Oh, yes, they have called the deals off, uh, although uh, there's a residual desire on the part of Pakistan in the end to, uh, to have uh, perhaps new deals if, if the conditions are appropriate. I think the belief now is, though, increasingly, uh, because the Pakistan army, for the first time, seems to have the public behind it as well as the politicians, that they can press ahead. By going into the Banu district, it's very interesting because that's the gateway to, to Waziristan, and it suggests now that uh, there will be a much more concerted effort here to go to the heart of where the Taliban are located, and that is in north and south Waziristan. You know, the, I mean, your um, sort of department, the, the State Department and the Pentagon, must be rather pleased with this because the war in Afghanistan first has to be won in Pakistan, doesn't it? Well, it certainly is going to be a major contributor to any success in, uh, in Afghanistan. But we have to remember now that what the Pakistan army is doing is dealing with its own problem. Uh, this is not about uh, breaking the back of, uh, of the Taliban because of their assisting in the Afghan insurgency, but it would be a consequence of, uh, uh, of uh, subduing uh, these insurgent elements that they would no longer be in a position to assist with the infiltration and the other kinds of support that they're giving to the Afghan Taliban. I was um, sort of reading a transcript of what Mr. Gates had told senators this week, and 
a rough translation of that would be that we have 18 months to see if the new AFPAC strategy works, and if it does not, um, then we won't have to wonder whether the war can be won. Well, I, I think that's very unfortunate to put a timetable on this. It, it, it strikes me and a number of other people here in Washington that we've made a mistake by putting so much of the emphasis on uh, on al-Qaeda and particularly on finding an exit. We've, uh, we've failed thus to recognize that uh, American state stakes and indeed the stakes of, uh, uh, of our allies are much greater than simply uh, the elimination uh, of al-Qaeda or, for that matter, whether we uh, can demonstrate uh, uh, a victory. I think what we have to do now is to, in the next 18 months, is to at least to show that there's been a reversal in, in the momentum that the Taliban were able to uh, be able to undertake uh, in the last couple of years. That's going to suffice. But the danger is that uh, the patience of the American public may run out if they think it's just about uh, a, a possible attack on the homeland. They've got to realize that the staying in the area and keeping it uh, out of the hands of, if not al-Qaeda, then groups like al-Qaeda is going to be critical to not only the stability of Afghanistan and Pakistan, but of course to the security of, uh, of the U.S. And, and, uh, and the West. Marvin Weinberg, as usual, thank you very much indeed. Um, with me at the SITREP Roundtable, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson from University <coughs> College London, the Globe Affairs Analyst in that place, Dr. Martin McCauley. Um, Julian, interesting, I mean, Marvin Weinberg is saying, what, basically, what on earth is Secretary Gates up to by saying, well, if we don't hack it in 18 months, then we've got to think whether or not we won the war? Well, I quite agree with him. It's most unfortunate. I'd put it strong, strong, more strongly than most unfortunate. It's an extremely silly thing to do. Mm. Because the Taliban's reaction will be, well, we've got to hang on for 18 months, and if they're, if they're not winning, they'll go. So all we've got to do is keep the pressure on. And so will American public opinion, that's so what Amer- so American, even, even more important, so will American public opinion, who think it's an 18-month deadline, it's either, you know, go or bust. And the, and the senators, Martin, will have uh, Secretary Gates back there and say, you told us 18 months ago that we were, it was a time limit, and, and what happens if it's, it's, we're not doing it? Yeah, the Republicans will love it, uh, and they'll beat Obama with it. But if you, look at Afghan, if you look at Pakistan, Pakistan has always been run in the interests of the middle class, uh, in the interests of Punjabis. Then you look at uh, where the Taliban is and the Swat Valley and so on. The people there regard themselves as uh, discriminated against, second-class citizens. Uh, Islamabad has never concerned itself about them. And now they come and they send the military in against them and so on. So, uh, if you like, Pakistan has always been a divided society. So therefore, um, from an American point of view and a British point of view, you have to realise that Pakistan is not one society, it's really two, and it's really the middle class, uh, for the first time, having to uh, take cognizance. But it's certainly true, though, isn't it? We come back to the crux, um, Julian Thompson, the crux of American and British counter-terrorism strategy seems to be winning war in Afghanistan but something's going to happen in Pakistan otherwise you can't win it in Afghanistan, is that right? That's absolutely right. Uh, they are, Afghanistan is dependent upon what goes on in Pakistan, effectively. It's not the other way round. You could get away 
with uh, losing in Afghanistan and provided Pakistan was firm enough holding it off. I mean, after all, we did the same. You have the North West Frontier District, which doesn't owe any um, allegiance to anyone, but they just kept in order. Mm. Uh, but now it's part of Afghanistan, uh, part of Pakistan, and treated as such. And as Martin said, treated very much as a second-class citizens. All these chickens are coming home to roost. Yes, and even if you lost the war, if you lost the war in Afghanistan, uh, it would then spread into the northwest frontier problem with Uzbekistan, which would be basically ninety-five uh, percent. Which is the key, as Marvin Weinberg was saying, about to the, from the Swat Valley yes. into Waziristan. Swat Valley. They seem to have taken it. Mingora. They've, they've destroyed Mingora, the, the capital of it. Seem to have taken it and so on. Because if you like, it's a Punjabi army, and it's not our place. Now, what will happen will be they will take that, and then they will gradually move. If you look at the bombing in Lahore, which is a middle-class city. And they're going for the luxury objects and so mm. on. They're going for the, the, the neck and the throat of the middle classes and trying to uh, demoralise them. Every terrorist group does this. Yes. I mean, that's, that's part of the plan, well, isn't it's it? part of cha- people changing people's mind yes. by, by terror and, and yes, by persuasion, that's what it does. in quotation I marks. I um, the, um, the guy that's driving the NATO forces in southern Afghanistan, Julian, uh, Major General um, uh, Mark de Griff. And he was saying yesterday in in the Netherlands, where he's briefing defence ministers, or certainly the eight NATO defence ministers, uh, seven plus Australia, that got troops in southern Afghanistan. He said, if we get more troops in there, and they are getting more troops in there, um, then we'll be able to push them back, push Taliban back. And I thought to myself, I wish I'd been there, because I'd like to have said to him, push them back to where? And then what do you do? Exactly. Uh, It's using the wrong sort of language, actually. It's not about pushing people anywhere or drawing lines on maps and saying we've got this bit and you haven't and therefore we're winning. What it actually is about, the troops on the ground, is holding the fort so that reconstruction and redevelopment can go on and you then try and change the, the, the perception of the people. It's not a military thing at all. That, the military are there to make certain that the civilian agencies can do their job. Those guys went on from um, his briefing in the Netherlands. Uh, the the defence ministers, that's the NATO defence ministers, went on to Brussels today, and they're going to beef up the command system, aren't they, in Afghanistan? And the, whole, the Americans are beefing up their command system. Um, it's taken a bit of time to get this going. It is, is taking time, but the other thing is that it's no good pouring more troops in if they, they are ring-fenced about what they can do. Yeah. Uh, and that'll be the test. Will all these extra troops actually get out of the ground and do the job for which well, they're meant to be doing? Isn't it, I mean, their job, isn't it, uh, uh, Martin, I mean, is, is uh, that when the elections in Kabul, or, sorry, in Afghanistan, maybe just in Kabul, but when the elections get going in August, all these extra troops there are to sort of guarantee some sort of uh, security to allow them to happen. Yes. Then and, what? And then what? Uh, you'll get a president, perhaps Karzai again, uh, and uh, where do you go from there? Uh, what is interesting that uh, the Pentagon uh, is beginning to think about the next stage of this, which is the protection of uh, Pakistan's nuclear weapons and where they are sighted. And apparently the, pa- the Pakistan military don't really tell uh, the government everything and uh, they are in control of the nuclear weapons program, and they keep, keep it to themselves, and it's located in various places. And if you look at where they think it's located, some of them are very, very near the northwest frontier province. So therefore the next stage is planning 
uh, to ensure that the Taliban don't have access and don't really attack these nuclear uh, uh, sites and, the, and the, the fear is they will attack transport between the two between sites. So therefore, the Americans are already thinking about the next stage, which is we may have to write off Afghanistan and the Swat Valley, Northwest Frontier Province, Waziristan, just to protect the nuclear sites and protect, and then uh, go back to what is this is really getting Punjab, scary, isn't it, Punjabi, uh, Julian? Yes, it's Punjabi, uh, uh, Pakistan, and you write off the rest. Hmm. One of the things that it, it is scary about this is that the whole concept of we are the sophisticated guys here, and because everyone's been to Staff College and one lot comes from Washington, the other lot comes from London, so smart. Had no idea, did we, what we were getting into? We had no idea whatsoever what we were getting into when we were backing the Mujahideen against the Russians. Mm. And I think I said on this programme before, if we'd had 2020 hindsight, we'd have allowed the Russians to stay there and said, good luck to you, mate. Yeah, and they didn't want to stay there, did they? <laughs> right. Yeltsin would have opted out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and look what happened to Yeltsin. Um, I'm going to talk about interrogation now because not a million miles from the war in Afghanistan is the war in Washington. Um, and that's where the CIA is fighting the Obama administration over interrogation techniques. The intelligence agency maintains that revealing documents and records to the public, which the Obama administration says it's going to do, will jeopardise counter-terrorism operations. Now, one as aspect that agencies want to keep secret concerns details of physical interrogations used by CIA operatives. Here's Jamie Gordon. It is known that some of the classified papers contain first-hand accounts from prisoners, some of whom have repeated their accusations after release. For example, one ex-CIA prisoner in Afghanistan claimed they would not let you rest day or night. Stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, don't sleep, don't lie on the floor. Another said that they were forced to listen to rap artist Eminem's Slim Shady album. The music was so foreign to them it made them frantic, sources said. In January, Chris Arendt, who used to be a guard at Guantanamo Bay, spoke about some of the techniques he witnessed. Guantanamo has what's called a frequent flyer program, which is to continuously move detainees from one cell to another on the hour every hour so that they can't sleep. This is throughout the night, throughout the day. Some former CIA officers have also told of five techniques used in the interrogation rooms. The first is called the attention grab, where the interrogator forcefully grabs the shirt front of the prisoner and shakes him. Then there's the attention slap, an open-handed blow aimed at causing pain and triggering fear. There's the belly slap. This is a hard, open-handed slap to the stomach. The aim is to cause pain but not internal injury. Doctors consulted advised against using a punch, which could cause lasting internal damage. The most effective is called simply long standing time. Prisoners are forced to stand, handcuffed and with their feet shackled to an eye bolt in the floor for more than 40 hours. Exhaustion and sleep deprivation are effective in yielding confessions. Today the most infamous interrogation technique is waterboarding. The prisoner is bound to an inclined board, feet raised and head slightly below the feet and cellophane or cloth is wrapped over the prisoner's face and water is poured over him. Unavoidably the the gag reflex kicks in and a terrifying fear of drowning leads to almost instant pleas to bring the treatment to a halt. The average time for a prisoner to submit is said to be as little as 14 seconds, although one officer is reported as saying that an al-Qaeda prisoner, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, won the admiration of interrogators when he was able to last between two and two and a half minutes before begging to confess. Jamie Gordon there. 
Gillian Thompson, uh, those descriptions that um, Janie's given us, the attention grab, attention slap, the belly slap, long time standing, waterboarding. Um, I, I can't quite see why anybody uh, would think that that was bad if, in fact, it was part of your interrogation technique which produced intelligence. Well, it's because uh, torture is, is, is forbidden um, and, and regarded as being not allowed. What is interesting, of course, to me, and this is not a direct answer to your question, is why people are getting excited about the, this information coming out. It's not coming out from the CIA. It's not secret. We all know about these interrogation <coughs> techniques. We were taught how to resist these inter interrogation techniques 40 years ago. Hmm. Uh, and indeed some of these techniques in a milder form were practiced on people when they were learning how to resist interrogation. But I agree with you, there's this uh, dichotomy. Suppose you knew, you knew that that guy there knows where there is a weapon of mass destruction in London, what would you do? My inclination would say give him a lot and get it out of him. But there'd be some people, lawyers, who would say that's absolutely disgraceful, you can't. Maybe their office will be the first to go up. Um, Martin, um, <laughs> the objectives here, I mean, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm not suggesting that we ought to be going around belly slapping, attention slapping, the attention grab. I mean, the attention grab, I mean, grabbing somebody by the front of his shirt, I mean, it's an old BBC trick, actually. Um, it's, the objective is to tactical and strategic, strategic intelligence. You either want to know... If you just capture somebody on the battlefield, you want to know what his unit was doing, does he know what's likely to happen next, or the longer term. You're removing him then off to some like Guantanamo, whatever, for the long-term uh, strategic interrogation. We've got to be careful here that we don't think that happens to everybody. No, it doesn't happen to everyone. Then the, the great question is, uh, is the intelligence you gather accurate or is the person, uh, has he got a very low threshold of pain and therefore he's going to tell you what he thinks you want to know? Because in many cultures, from Arab culture, Indians, they will, in fact, if you ask them a question, they will reply in a manner which they think will please you. In other words, they'll tell you what they think you want to know. Precisely. So therefore you have this problem of the, of the objectivity of the intelligence you gather. And therefore, I suspect that when you are uh, dealing with prisoners and, and, sub and subjecting them to this type of treatment, you have to think about the culture and you have to d apply uh, different techniques to different cultures. Yes, but I think there's, there's another thought, and I totally go along with what Martin says, that quite often the, the chap tells you what he thinks you want to hear in order to, to stop the torture. But if you also apply techniques like sleep deprivation and all these things, you disorientate him or her so that they are unable to work out a, a plan to defeat you because they then become so tired and so disorientated that all their ideas about how they will do it... I mean, I, I remember an exercise where we were capturing fleet air arm crews and putting them through interrogation techniques where a what, guy... on the moors? Yeah, yeah. Where, where a squadron commander of a fleet air squadron was telling everybody within an hour what the, the details of the aeroplanes he was flying mm. because he was put through these uh, disorientation techniques. It wasn't an hour, it was about a day. So here's a chap who's, who's you know, trying to resist, but because of this disorientation, he, he finds it difficult to do it. I think that's what, what they're trying to do with some of these techniques. Mm. And, and to answer your other question about why it's not allowed, various... Um, conferences, going back to the Hague and various conferences even before the First World War, were trying to lay down rules of warfare. What 
in medieval times, no one would have turned a hair at doing these sort of things in order to get information out. It's just regarded as being uncivilised. That's why we don't like it. Mm. <laughs> Can I just try on something else? I mean, I was looking at one of the case studies. There's a guy called uh, Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi. He was picked up um, was a few years ago, and he was brought through the whole lot, presumably the shirt grab, right the way through to waterboarding. And then in the end, he, he broke. Uh, and he t- but the, he told them, um, or told the Americans, exactly what he thought they wanted to know. And the Bush administration got this information and said, there you are, we know that uh, al-Qaeda people in Iraq um, plan to use biochemical weapons. So, in fact, what the interrogators had done was to support an idea from the, the president's office, or especially Dick Cheney's office, uh, had had anyway. So the whole thing was counterproductive, Martin. Yes, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. If you go back, the Chinese apparently are extremely good at this, but if you go back to the 1930s, 1940s in, in Stalin's Russia, the evidence now is that they beat uh, confessions out of everyone because of, they, were, they, they were very skilled at sleep deprivation mm. and keeping people in a very cold cell and so on. They were masters of that, those techniques. But in the end, they got nonsense uh, because Stalin wanted uh, a guilty verdict. So therefore, in the end, uh, very, very few actually stood up to them and I think only one or two generals, uh, in fact, uh, died under interrogation. Julian, it was interesting. I, I, thought in, I think it was in May 2007 and General David Petraeus... Uh, in Iraq, and he did a, a round robin, a letter to all the troops after the whole thing about Abu Ghraib and etc. had been re- resurfaced, and he said, "You've got to remember that what sets us aside from the enemy we're trying to capture and fight is the fact that we do things properly, that we're not going to get to that level, we're not going to let ourselves down." And he said, "I think it was something." He said, "I've got it here somewhere." Um, we must observe the standards and values that dictate that we treat non-competents and detainees with dignity and respect. That simply hasn't happened. And when you see uh, someone like, uh, is it, what was his, uh, the Attorney General's name, American Attorney General's name, Gonzalez, who said, that, oh, the United Nations Convention, it's quaint, he called it, quaint. And so you have the politicians really saying to the CIA and the army... It's okay. Just get the information. Yes, it, it it must have come from the very highest level, that kind of interrogation techniques. But I still think that it's counterproductive in two ways. One is that it can be used as a propaganda tool against you. And secondly, of course, one of the reasons that soldiers are quite keen on these Hague conventions and all that thing is because you are also concerned, if you fall into their hands, what they'll do to you. And so mm. it's nice to have a body of rules... And so, for example, if you fell into the hands of the Japanese in the Second World War who hadn't signed these conventions, it was an it was open, open thing for them. They could do what they liked to. Was we like to have these conventions for our own protection as well. We ought to come back to this at some other time, but at the moment, I think we've got to move on because um, here's a fact that will get up the frocks of everyone worried about defence cuts in the UK, certainly. In the past 10 years, roughly 10 years, global military spending, since 1999 that is, has increased by 45%. Lots of other figures all come uh, courtesy of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, SIPRI. Uh, Dr. Sam Perlow-Freeman uh, is the head of Military Expenditure Project 
at Cypri. Um, I tell you, the latest spending is a record, isn't it? It's, it's certainly the highest that we've recorded at Cypri insofar as we've been collecting consistent data over time, and it's higher than the last peak in military spending in the dying years of the Cold War. So uh, in, in that sense, it, it's, it's a record level. It probably is not in real terms higher than, say, during World War II, but uh, in peacetime. What about the credit crunch? Presumably your figures, which go up to, what, 2008, so therefore the credit crunch and the world credit crunch don't affect these figures. That's right, uh, in that budgets were, were for 2008 were set early in the year or the previous year, and while there might be some revisions, the full force of the credit crunch didn't strike till quite late in the year. For 2009, we're still not seeing a huge sign of it having an effect. The United States budget for fiscal year 2009 again shows an increase. The Chinese have increased their official defence budget for 2009. There's increase in India, another big spender. Um, some smaller spenders have been cutting as a result of the financial crisis. Some medium-sized countries have been putting on hold arms purchases. So there's some evidence of an effect, but not very much as far as the biggest spenders are concerned. I mean, those biggest spenders, presumably America, is top of the pile. By far, yes. American spending in 2008 was $607 billion. That's 41% of the global total, and it's over seven times as high as the second highest spender, uh, which was China. And what about the, um, the people that sell more? Who are the big sellers? In terms of arms sales? Mm. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> the United States is, is, has, in recent years, been the biggest arms exporter, uh, and Russia the second biggest, according to CIPRI figures, um, then Germany, France, and the United Kingdom, in terms of major conventional weapons transfers. To the other thing that struck me, I mean, we're doing more, I mean, we, the world, is doing far more uh, peacekeeping now than, than it seems ever before. So presumably, um, instead of just talking about, let's say, you're a fighter or, or, or sort of uh, warships or, or, or missiles, whatever, we have to put into your figures the cost of maintaining, what, nearly 200,000 peacekeepers. Well, the peacekeeping expenses... Are, for most countries, they're not, a, they're not a huge portion of countries' military expenditures. Um, now, when you t consider the actual war-fighting expenditures, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, then that's, that, that's much higher levels of expenditure. The United States has spent uh, around $900 billion up to 2009 on those wars. Britain has spent £12 billion uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, but those can't really be called peacekeeping. So, in general, I wouldn't say that actual, you know, typical UN or EU and so forth peacekeeping missions are a major component of military spending. Tim, just a final thought. Um, in all these figures on what people are spending on, 
and presumably some of that... I don't know if some of that cost comes in R&D. Are you able to detect military warnings, I suppose we call them, of who's arming up for what? It's very hard to tell a country's intentions just from their military spending levels because there can be a lot of things motivating increasing military spending. I mean, I suppose you might say that as the U.S. started... uh, heavily increasing military spending in the early 2000s. It was indeed building up for war in Iraq. Um, So maybe that's one example. Um, But countries may be increasing spending for force modernization to gain influence uh, in the region or to, to be seen as a major global player Um, without necessarily any intention of starting a war. It might be said, though, that um, one of the countries that increased spending, well, the country that increased spending at the most rapid rate uh, up to 2008 was Georgia, and that indeed did lead to a war. And now we see in the same region what looks quite like an arms race between Armenia and Azerbaijan, who have an unresolved conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh. Of course, there's lots of other political factors to consider in such a situation, but that could be taken as a warning sign. From Cypria, Dr. Sam Perla-Freeman, thank you very much for jo- uh, joining us. Uh, we're coming up to half past the hour. It's, um, you're listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio with me, Christopher Lee, still with me in the studio, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, and from University College London, the Global Affairs Analyst, Dr Martin McCauley. Um, Julian, at a time when uh, I suppose most people in the MOD are thinking, crikey, what's going to happen to our defence budget? And we had a thing this week when the uh, Tory spokesman on the health service or something said, oh, well, we'll keep certain things going, but other departments, which would have included the MOD, they're going to have to have a chop, 10% even, 15% maybe. Uh, These figures are quite (coughs) baffling, aren't they, when you consider we're one of the groups that are probably going to lose money. Yeah, they are baffling, but what is interesting is what would the knock-on effect be in a a political decision to, for example, uh, cancel the carriers? Uh, in terms of employment. So they, they, they can make these statements, well, not 10% off. I wonder if they've actually worked out what the 10% represents. Uh, perhaps they'll uh, get rid of the X number of civil servants who we know are in the MOD being on the payroll and not doing any work. Oh, it'd we be awful. The other day. That'd be awful. But it, actually, it might be, in a recession, better to spend more money on defence and create more jobs, perversely. Yes as long as they're not in the MOD. Um, uh, uh, Martin, I mean, it was, it was interesting that, um, um, that Dr. Perla Freeman was saying about China increasing its uh, defence spending. I mean, it's not by peanuts either, is it? It's not by peanuts. It's going up 14.9%, and that's only the declared part. And it's well known that building a nuclear submarine fleet. The other thing about China is... That's nuclear powered, not nuclear firing. No. Yes, they're nuclear weapons, weapons yeah. as well. Both. Both, they're yeah, building right. both bombers and ha- hunters. Hainan right. Island. Yeah. The other thing about China in Africa is uh, they're trading weapons for goods. For instance, they're negotiating with, I guess, Tanzania over fishing rights, and they're going to provide them with, with guns and bullets and uh, military equipment. With Angola, 
the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you supply military hardware and they give you uh, copper and iron ore and so on. That bit about the, uh, Julian, that bit about what he was saying about Iraq um, buying lots of weapons, mainly from the United States, you can see why some of the cynics say, well, the Americans are actually making money out of the Iraqi war. Well, lots of American companies are making a lot of money out of, out of um, the, the, Iraq, the, the war in Iraq. General Motors isn't. Well, no, General Motors may not, but the, but the, the, uh, the defence um, contractor companies, uh, Brown and Root and all that lot, they, they're making millions out of the Iraq war. Yeah, some of them going bust, of course. Some Martin, are going yeah. bust, but others are doing rather nicely, thank you. Yeah. What yes. about your lot, Martin, your, your uh, Russian friends? How are they doing? They're not doing very well because the, the biggest export market for Russian arms was China. And China has gradually come around to the view that they can produce the weapons that Russia can produce, except for the high-tech ones, the lasers and the other thing. And the deals they want to do now with them is, in fact, uh, they'll buy some equipment from the, from the Russians, but they want to have their own factories and therefore a technology transfer. And therefore the Russians are in a bind. If they say yes, over a period of five to ten years, they've handed over their high-tech and the uh, Chinese don't need them anymore. Right. Um, talking about weapons, on Tuesday this week, a spokesman for the North Korean government said that if North Korea were to be provoked, then it would use nuclear weapons in a merciless offensive. Really. On the line from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Professor Paul Rogers. Um, Paul, I mean, nobody is saying that the uh, North Koreans have a nuclear weapon capability, are they? No, they're not. There's been talk about them having enough weapons-grade material for perhaps five or six weapons. It's more likely that they don't have any that are deployable just at the moment. And the recent test was an attempt to perhaps overcome difficulties they had with the first test back in 2006. So they may be getting fairly close to what they call a weaponized capability, but they may well not yet be there. And what we're getting instead is a very high level of rhetoric uh, and quite a ratcheting up of tensions, not just on the nuclear issue, but on a number of other issues, particularly in their relations with South Korea. They, so they had a meeting, didn't they, this week with South Korea? It didn't last very long, about the industrial uh, corridor just across the border. That's an example. There are many thousands of North Koreans work in an, a, a, that industrial zone, which is actually run mainly by South Korean companies. And the North Koreans are now demanding a very big increase in the wages for their workers although the wages are very low at present, they're only about $70 a month, and also a very big increase in the rents. Um, they seem to be ratcheting up things right across the board, and I think this is one example of that. There's also been the, the long-term detention of the two, uh, one Chinese-American, one Korean-American journalist, uh, who've, been, who've got 12 years of, of detention. So all in all, this is a regime which is really playing it tough in a very strident way, and it's getting a fairly measured response from the United States and China, although I think there is quite a strong resolution which is now being prepared by the Security Council, which may even be agreed in the next few hours. And they've got to vote on that probably tomorrow, but yeah. one of the difficulties always is actually getting somebody to enforce it. Yes, that's true. Uh, it, it's more an issue of symbolism, I think. I mean, they are trying to ratchet up the particular forms of sanctions on North Korea, but there's not very much that can be done because 
for most of the people in North Korea, they are already in a state of pretty grim poverty. You come back time and time again to the issue that the one country that does have influence over North Korea is China. And it's clear that I think the Obama administration does recognize that. So it's been rather cautious about stepping up its counter-rhetoric to what North Korea is saying. Just a um, final thought, Paul. Um, the whole thing about has she, has she not, has North Korea got nuclear weapons... Don't we simply get real about North Korea and say, well, they've done it. We simply have to create the sort of relationship that makes it unlikely they'd be using it. I think that may be the case. But the worry, of course, is that if North Korea really has a full nuclear weapons arsenal, there will be strong pressures in Japan and South Korea and possibly even Taiwan uh, to at least go nuclear or have a virtual nuclear capability. I think you're, you're right in saying that that is going to probably be the way forward. But there is this ominous side of it, which is why you get so many people right through to people like Henry Kissinger saying, now we do have to bite the bullet, if I could use that metaphor, and actually look at the possibility of moving away from nuclear weapons as a way of armaments. It's a very tall order, but what's happened with North Korea is perhaps a further prompt to that line of thinking. Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Indeed, um, I want to go and talk about Cuba now. Um, uh, because it's back in the news, uh, Fidel Castro has rejected, or appears to have rejected, an overture from the Organization of American States, the OAS, to rejoin the OAS. Uh, on the phone from Rio de Janeiro, Dr. Stephen Wilkinson, who is the Assistant Director of the International Institute for the Study of Cuba at London Metropolitan University. Now, uh, apart from asking you what are you doing in uh, Rio, wouldn't we all like to be there, why has Cuba said it won't join the OAS? Why has it turned down the invitation? Well, the Cuban position is that uh, it believes that the uh, Organization of American States is a tool of U.S. imperialism and... Uh, Really, the Cubans have set their stall in trying to integrate into Latin America without the United States being involved. So they are, they are engaging with Latin America, but they don't wish to be uh, in the OAS because they see it as dominated by the United States. And is this a universal uh, view as far as you can make up, or is it simply a question that Fidel Castro still has the most amazing amount of influence, that Raul, his brother, who is supposed to be the leader, uh, will go along with that, but nobody else is objecting to it? No, no, um, it, that is the government position. It's uh, not just Fidel. There's no division between the two of them on that. That, that's the official uh, Cuban position on the Organization of American States uh, up to this point. Of course, um, things may change uh, as things develop. Uh, it is clear that the, the whole of the organization, except the United States, really would like Cuba to be back in. It's the United States is now putting up um, hurdles for Cuba to jump over in order to, uh, hmm. for it to accept it back in. Um, to all intents and purposes, though, the diplomatic battle has been won by Cuba. They're now just um, uh, uh, choosing not to, to, to go into the organization on this principle that historically it's been, as far as they're concerned, a tool uh, for the United States domination of the region. I mean, I was, I was thinking, the, the, given the state of the uh, Cuban economy, have they got to make stronger alliances within the rest of Latin America? Undoubtedly. I mean, Cuba is uh, uh, presently uh, going through a very choppy walk economically from a financial point of view. They've got very severe liquidity problems. Uh, their uh, relationship with Venezuela is absolutely crucial at the moment. 
but they are developing rapidly more uh, relationships with other countries, particularly, uh, for example, China, India, and Iran. Uh, and Cuba really has to have uh, an open economy. I mean, it has to have as many trading partners as it possibly can. It can't feed itself, for example, so it needs to import food. It's, it's, in a, it's in a very difficult situation economically right now, and we'll try and find as many partners as possible. And of course, Russia is back on the scene in quite a large way as well. Right. Dr. Stephen Wilkinson, thank you very much indeed. Sorry about the line there, um, but Martin, I mean, one of the interesting things that um, towards, the, towards the end, I don't know if everybody heard it, you were saying that Russia is now back on uh, on the scene in, in Cuba. Uh, Russia would like to be back where it was in 1962. Really, and it sent it brought uh, down it brought down uh, the, the Russian leadership. That yes, did. yeah. Well, it almost did. Uh, Khrushchev. That was the end oh. of Khrushchev uh, two years later. But the Russians would like it to be back there. Uh, but the trouble is, they don't have the money, and their military hardware is and not. They got as, all the sugar they can eat. Yeah, they got all the sugar. And China is a much uh, bigger player, and China is really playing for, uh, really, to be the major. Uh, non-Latin American influence in the region and saying it's it's better than the, the Americans and so on. The Russians uh, sent a fleet to Venezuela and I think it went in the direction of Cuba as well. Uh, but uh, Russia at present doesn't have the money and doesn't have the clout. Uh, the key player from the American point of view is China and Washington doesn't seem to think that China uh, would really cause it any trouble because the relationship, the economic relationship between China and the U.S. is of key importance, and China uh, must ensure that the dollar stays strong, uh, and because it has uh, enormous reserves in the United States, so it doesn't want to upset the U.S. in the Caribbean. Julian, I was talking to a, um, a Cuban academic this morning, uh, who must be reliable as far as the administration is concerned, because he's, you know, he's not in Havana; he's in London uh, for the moment. He says that um, what President Obama is doing is OK. He said, but one of the great fears is that if Cuba relaxes, then the mob, the what he calls the mafia, would be back in Cuba and you'd be back to Batista times. That's quite a sort of impression, isn't it? It is. And, and the mob was back. The mob operated from there. Uh, but the interesting thing is that they've got to play this balancing act between being too uh, much poke in the eye to the Americans, which, which is risky, and uh, allowing anybody to come back in and turn the place back into a, a haven for the mafia. Right. But, um, Martin, I mean, 90 miles off the American coast um, and with a large uh, Cuban exile um, population diaspora in, in, in Florida, you can see, can't you? You can see why the Americans would be twitchy. They, they can play the long term because Cuba is a clapped out state and economically, as, as Professor Dr. Wilson pointed out, uh, all the friends of Cuba can't hide the, the, the fact that they are economically going backwards. And if you look at the rest of Latin America, Venezuela is also has problems. So therefore, from the American point of view, Cuba can, can uh, really roast in its own juice. Right. Um, talking of roasting, um, tomorrow Iranians go to the polls to choose the country's next president, or re-elect the present one. It's a battle between the ruling conservative or principalist president and more moderate candidates. In past elections, the incumbent has always won a second term. President Mahmoud uh, Ahmadinejad is the sitting tenant. On the line, the editorial director of Cross-Border Information, John Marks. Hello. 
John, hello. This is not a fixed election, is it? Oh, it's not rigged. It's not. It's not rigged. It's kind of shaped. In fact, it's it's very shaped. Iranian elections always work in a a mysterious way. There are always surprises. You actually get many more surprises in an Iranian election than you do in many Western elections. Very often the candidate who wins, um, the reformist Mohammad Khatami in the late 90s, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who's uh, standing now, um, was actually a relatively surprised candidate. There are surprises. You expect people to come up. Iran watchers will always have names. Uh, um, if betting was allowed in the Islamic Republic, you know, the bookmakers would always be very, very busy. But it's also shaped because the Islamic Revolution has its own set of authorities, and they basically say, who can stand? Now, this election, we've got a nice symmetry. You could say we've got two sort of uh, conservatives and two reformists, and the electorate have got to take their pick amongst those. The, I mean, I seem to have read somewhere there was about 540 people or 450 people, whatever, put their names forward, and, and then the, um, the um, they were sort of whittled down, as you point out, to four. But eventually it's the supreme leader, isn't it, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. He is the guy that will indicate who he prefers? Well, the, um, the Rahba, the spiritual leader, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, he is a very, very canny uh, political player and has been... Um, through the, uh, the the three decades of the Islamic Republic. He's not all-powerful, but he's the most powerful person in Iran, um, which is a much more complex policy than people think. He never actually formally gets up and says, I will back candidate X or candidate Ahmadinejad in this case. But most people expect that Ahmadinejad was his creature. Um, Khamenei's son has actually worked very closely. He was on... Uh, Ahmadinejad's first campaign and as part of his inner circle. So people have been expecting that the supreme leader would support the president. The president here, remember, is actually the equivalent of our prime minister. He's the head of government. However, as we know, Ahmadinejad's behavior can uh, be eccentric. Um, you can have the horrors of his uh, Holocaust denial. You can have the extremely confrontational view he's taken on the nuclear situation and despite the fact he's now saying Iran is a world power and we're going to get over the sanctions problem and despite the fact the Iranian people know very well how to live with sanctions um, he's starting to make a lot of people tired and there is speculation that even as high as the supreme leader and certainly among some of the powerful mullahs and generals who actually rule Iran people are saying Ahmadinejad may be a liability if if they're thinking that, then they may allow for a rather more free, less influenced by the authorities' election than we might otherwise get, and we could have a surprise. Have you been around to the bookies? Who are you putting your money on? Um, well, you know, recent times, lots of Iranian friends are saying Mr. Mousavi, but actually it's quite uh, the lead reformist. But there's actually, um, I think, uh, the, the way that it all works out in divide and rule, I think Ahmadinejad with the power of the state behind him and the fact that what he says um, may make um, middle class, may make technocratic Iranians hold their head in their hands, but in fact he's still very popular. You have to say it's going to be Ahmadinejad, but it's, yeah, the odds are very short, but it's not for sure he could yet trip up. And remember, if it has to go to a second round, 
then, uh, which I think it will. Which then, will be uh, next uh, Friday, Friday week, wouldn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. A whole new momentum comes. Ahmadinejad himself, if you remember, really got elected because he came up on the rails by being just scraping into that second round, and people said, well, they didn't want the former president, Rafsanjani, who's a, a, a wily um, establishment cleric with big business interests, and they preferred the populist uh, Ahmadinejad, and he won. Right. John Marks, thank you very much indeed. All right, here are the money. Big money's on, still on the president, um, Ahmadinejad. Martin. It is. Uh, I think the poor people in Iran will vote for Ahmadinejad, but if you look at the middle class and you look at women... They are likely to vote for Mousavi or one of the other candidates. He used to be the Prime Minister. He used to be the Prime Minister, but Ahmadinejad in a television... Well, he's a sort of grandfather figure, isn't he? Well, he rubbished him. Ahmadinejad d- yeah. destroyed him in a television uh, programme. But uh, I think that uh, Iran may, in fact, vote along class lines. And if you think that half the population is under 25, inflation is 15 to 20%, bread is expensive. Julian, everyone is watching this because, I mean, remember, what, three weeks ago when um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, new Prime Minister of Israel, was in Washington, uh, President Obama was saying, listen, we've got to fix the problem with Palestine. And he says, before you fix the problem with Palestine, you've got to fix the problem with Iran. Iran, another country that's boiling up a, a nuclear warhead capability. Indeed. But not only that... Iran, a country which has huge influence or potential influence in the Gulf, which we have to remember is the source of so much of our oil, and also greatly feared from across the Gulf by many of the Arab nations. Mm. I think the Navy, Navy just sent another two ships to the Gulf, yep. Cumberland and Exeter, yep. and also um, a survey <coughs> ship, Enterprise? No, yep. it's not Enterprise, it's something sent, like they that. They sent another ship. But yep. that's the reason, it's not just... Well, the nuclear, obviously, is very important. The effect on Israel is very important. But they are a key player. Iran is a key player in that key part of the world. Iran is a Shia empire, and they see themselves as the Persian empire. And you've got Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and and Israel. Right. That's the triangle against uh, Martin. fear Israel, fear uh, Iran. You've got 20 seconds. Why were the results of the... Uh, of the election in Lebanon so important to us? Extremely important because half, 60% of the population is Muslim, 40% Christian, but uh, the seats, the majority of the seats went to the Christians, pro-Christian and pro-Western. Yeah, we like them in other words. Yes, we like them. This week. Okay, now I want to talk about uh, Karadzic, uh, Radovan Karadzic. There's a long-awaited announcement about Radovan Karadzic's trial for war crimes has come. It is due to begin in August, due to begin in August. It could easily go on for a couple of years, and after more than 12 years on the run, Mr Karadzic was arrested in Belgrade on a bus last July, posing as Dragon Dabic, a bearded New Age guru. Um, he faces 11 charges, including genocide for allegedly masterminding Bosnian Serb atrocities during the 1992-95 Bosnian War. For quite a lot of that time, he was tracked by a BBC correspondent whose home was in Sarajevo. His name, Nick Horton. He's put the story of his search for Karadzic into book form. It's called The Quest for Radovan Karadzic, and I've been talking to him. Where did you go? I first went to, to Bosnia in 1998 uh, for a very... Uh, short trip there 
Um, and then in June 2002, I was made the BBC's Sarajevo correspondent. So I started living in the Balkans permanently for the first time at the end of June 2002. Actually, I remember the, the day after that I arrived, uh, there was um, breaking news that uh, another raid had gone in for Radovan Karadzic. So I uh, was thrown in at the deep end, and that was the start of many raids over the coming months and years for Karadzic. It's interesting, I mean, Lee, um, reading some of the lines that I can, I can, I can hear, I can imagine... You're going in somewhere, and one of the first bits of advice you get is, do not speak English. Why? Tell us why. We all know, but tell us. Because in many parts of the Balkans, especially in, in Serbian areas, um, there is a great suspicion about uh, America and its little friend, Britain, who is seen as uh, the great supporter of America. British troops obviously um, had a lot of involvement at different times during the 1990s in that part of the world. And so certainly in certain environments, for instance, um, I was at Vojislav uh, Sheshel's farewell uh, rally in Belgrade before, before he went to the Hague. Yes, in fact, that was my first day in Belgrade, and that evening I had to go and, and report on his speech as he spoke to five or 6,000 people in Republica Square, and I was advised by my BBC uh, uh, producer, whatever you do, do not speak English, because a lot of the people in that crowd would quite happily turn round and uh, uh, vent a bit of their anger and frustration on you, seen as somebody who was perhaps involved, in, as they would see it, in anti-Serb uh, campaigns and, and military action in the previous year. So at certain times you did have to be careful. And that why, that's why it was always crucial that whoever I was with was somebody I could trust in who had a very good instinct and feel for the environment that, that I was in. Because this wasn't always the case. It was just certain times and certain places when I had to be careful. But this trust is, is, is so important in that whole region. Um, because you can easily get ripped off. I and mean, there was a point in the book when you thought you had letters... Um, and they were photocopies. You thought you'd got photocopies with Karadzic's signature, etc. You'd been set up, hadn't you? I had, yes, and um, I, I put my hand up. That was. Uh, I always like to double-check my sources and to, uh, to check information that, that, that was given to me. I was given this information by what I regarded as absolutely uh, top-class source who'd provided information before, which had always proved to be accurate. Um, uh, there was another person associated with this who, who said, these are genuine letters, you know, you, you can go with this. And it became a, a quite a big story at the time um, uh, and was produced in, in, a, in a national newspaper in Britain. Um, it turned out, I learned later on, that it was a setup that these letters had been constructed um, by uh, individuals or organisations that saw this as a means of getting closer uh, to Karadzic. So in a sense... Western intelligence people. In intelligence people, um, I, would, I would say. Um, but what it revealed to me, not only that uh, incident, but another incident later on, was although I felt a bit embarrassed and, you know, I'd been set up and, and so on, it also revealed to me the, the desperation, perhaps, of organisations that were trying to find Karadzic, that they would engage in this type of activity. Uh, and it, it illustrated to me how little... Um, the hunters, whether they're Western intelligence agencies or military organisations or peacekeepers or diplomats or whatever, actually knew about Karadzic. And that's the, the issue that continued to intrigue me over the years. I mean, we could go on for years about this and everybody's going to have to buy the quest for Radvan Karadzic to find out the rest. Because it's, it's, it's Le Carre stuff. It's also Le Carre stuff in as much that it's not until he went into the court 
that you actually got sight of him. And it's a wonderful line where you, through the glass protection, you're willing him to look at you. And he didn't. I mean, this, in some sense, this is a huge adventure of not quite getting there. It is, absolutely, yes. Um, and it was a strange feeling because I had spent much of my time looking for him or researching this issue. And one of the reasons was not only just that I was intrigued by the whole story, but also the fact that when all the cameras and the journalists had disappeared from that part of the world, new conflicts had arisen and the world's attention or the media's attention had, had gone to other places. In order to attract um, interest from my editors in London or elsewhere, uh, this was one of the few names, one of the few subjects that would prick up the ears of an editor. Um, so there was this, there was Radko Maladic, there was Srebrenica. Uh, these were the issues that could still interest editors. And so it, it became, I don't know, perhaps 30 or 40% of my work at times related to the carriages, the latest raid, the latest rumour, uh, the, 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 the latest leaked document. So... Uh, so having spent so much time and, and bored probably so many of my friends and relatives about my theories or what I'd learnt, then to finally walk into the, to the Hague courtroom and to be separated by, by this glass wall and he was on the other side of it, just, just a few feet away, was, was, was a strange feeling. And I've, I've put the request in to, to do the interview with him and apparently uh, I understand he would be delighted apparently to be interviewed by me. Whether the, the court will actually allow that is, is a different matter. But that, that would be quite, quite an occasion. Um, I think, yeah. We'll come with you. OK. Thank you. <laughs> so we will. Why not? Uh, that was Nick Horton. Um, have a look at the quest for Radovan Karadzic. It really is written like uh, Le Carre. Um, try it. Yes. Uh, may may I say that when I saw the photograph of uh, Karadzic when he was arrested, he reminded me of Karl Marx in glasses. Uh, in Glasgow? No, Karl Marx in glasses. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And uh, somebody should have picked him up because it was absolutely marvellous that uh, he took over the personality of uh, Dragic, or Drabic, yeah. uh, who was basically a faith healer. He was, started off as a psychiatrist, so he ended up as a faith healer. And he was very successful with this. In other words, it, they, it, he it, was it, not uh, playing the real world. He wasn't really in the real yeah, world. They, they, they all get God in the end. Um, Ratko Miladic, though, Julian, General Miladic, he's the guy that we want now. Why yes. haven't we got him? He's just well hidden and uh, got lots of cover and difficult to get at, I suspect. We'll so get him in the that? end. I, think I, so. I suspected Who's if, you, hiding him? if you offered a million dollars, he'd be delivered uh, on, a, on a platter. Yeah, and there's, uh, there, there's Gordon uh, Hudgic. Now, he is the other one that they're trying to get, but he doesn't, he doesn't rate. In the, it's just these two, the terrible twins. Yeah, the, the terrible twins, because if you, if you look at uh, Karadzic, he, with his uh, fantastic bouffant hair, and he was a psychiatrist and a faith healer and so on, you start laughing. But Mladic... He's a man, you look mm. at him and you say, my word, that's a thug. Listen, talking about people that it's very tempted to laugh at, and it's quite wrong to do so because of the hair, etc., uh, I give you uh, Colonel Gaddafi, um, uh, Julian, of, uh, of, of, of Libya. He is visiting the Italians at the moment. And I looked and I saw him in this sort of Ruritarian uniform. Uh, quite bizarre. Mm. It is bizarre, but not only that, he's got, he got a photograph on his uniform of Mussolini, apparently interrogating or having words with a chap who was a, a Sunni, Sunusi, sorry, not Sunni, a Sunusi tribesman from yeah. Libya, 
who was a was a what he what Mussolini would have called a terrorist, or we would have called a freedom fighter against Mussolini. But there is a, there there is there is history here, isn't there? There was a time when the Italians thought that the Libyans were responsible for terrorist activities against Italian property, including I think a, a, was it an airline that was shot down, and also a ship, a ship, the Kililara, which which I was involved in the fringe of because I was involved in anti terrorism at sea and there was a good chance we might have gone to take it back yes and so this visit is it is rather important isn't it it's a sort of you know a well, the long time had a huge link to libya since about 1911 when they first went in there so so it's, it's not surprising nearly a hundred years of involvement um martin the just one other thing that struck struck me this week um omar um, the 11 years ago, 29 people and unborn twins were killed, weren't they? The real mm. IRA mm. leader, mm. Michael McKevitt, mm. has been responsible, according to the judges, for the Omar bomb in 1998. Why haven't they been nicked? Because they live in the Republic, in the Irish Republic, and the Dublin government at present has enormous financial problems, and it's the last thing in the world that uh, it wants to undertake would be... Uh, 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 to arrest the other three and bring them to jail. The other thing is that McKevitt is in jail... In the Republic. Mm. And? And he'll, he'll stay, stay there, there, serve a sentence, and then they'll think about uh, another trial. OK, we have to think about another week, because that's it for this week. Many thanks to Julian Thompson and Martin McCauley. Don't forget, you can listen online anytime at bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. I'm Christopher Lee, and Mary, Mary was in the hut. <laughs>